Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Eva Hagberg-Fisher. In her 20s, Eva looked everywhere for connection. Drugs, alcohol, therapists, boyfriends, girlfriends. Relationships weren't nourishing. They were an exchange of sex and power. Then at age 30, an undiscovered mass in her brain ruptured, and she became something she always detested. Vulnerable. Her new book, How to Be Loved, a memoir of life-saving friendship, is Eve's wrenching and defiant memoir about the love, friendship, and emotional intimacy she was compelled to ask for and finally accept when she entered the world of serious illness. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Eva Hagberg-Fisher. Eva, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, Thanks for being on. You've written a memoir, How to Be Loved, a memoir of life-saving friendship. It's it's a beautiful book, and... I'm always struck by memoirs that don't start at the beginning, right? You know, that, that you kind of start in explaining or, or describing an encounter with this woman, Allison, who is this woman who's like double your age at the time. And you met her at a meeting in Berkeley and you, it, it's, you were in, you were a couple of years sober, I think, and had left a sort of wild sex, drugs, rock and roll kind of lifestyle in New York City. <laughs> and, and it's interesting, you describe meeting her like I, in such honesty, the way you sized up the meeting. Like I, I, I feel like many people size up any social interaction this way, but you describe it so honestly, like, okay, who's the alpha, who's the beta, who's the talkers, who's the client, who's in charge? And, and, and you describe this, this friendship where that was and and just the very experience of the relationship was a new thing for you yeah um I mean I'd I'd never met anybody like her and I I I also I wanted to open well there's a couple reasons that that's the first chapter I mean one is that I did want to explore time in the book um and and think about how how we remember things, we remember them not in linear order, but I also needed the book to have some sort of propulsive chronology, right? So I didn't want to make um, a mistake and get so far into like theorizing time and chronology that I totally lost the reader, but I also wanted to open on a scene and then go back in time. And that first chapter is actually my proposal, which took me six drafts. That was the sixth draft of my book proposal. And starting with this person, Allison, who ended up figuring really prominently, that was a way in for me because the way that I felt about her was so, I mean, I love her so much. And so I was able to access a voice, a writing voice that was actually difficult for me to get when I was writing more about my illness or my other friendships. I was struggling to kind of find a sort of warm, compassionate approach. And as soon as I thought, okay, how do I introduce the reader to this person okay, I'm going to do it through my eyes when I first met her, but also knowing what happened later and knowing how important she was. And I also just wanted to, I think throughout the book, talk about 
things that I think a lot of us do, but we just don't articulate or we don't get that precise with it. So I love that you picked up on on that and felt that we all do that because I think we do. Yeah, it's interesting. Like the great thing about good writing like this is it does make you aware of your own. I I, I feel like the, the, the way to the way to universality is through the particular, right? So the deeper you are in your own story, the the more universal it connects, right? (laughs) And yeah, it, it does. I mean, you, you, I, I find myself reading it thinking, Oh gosh, yeah, I, I I do things like this. It's it's very incredibly well written. Thank you. Um, which are the, which things do you do? (laughs) Oh yeah. No, just sizing up people or, (laughs) or you think of like, you know, once you feel sort of insecure, well, you know, well, I've, at least I, you know, I'm, I'm superior to this person in this way, or, or you know, what I mean, or I'm not as bad off as that person, or you know, you, you sort of like it, it, these sort of mini defense mechanisms that uh, mm-hmm. neurotically go in our heads. The the thing that struck me also in that first chapter is Allison told you that you were broken, and you're like, no, no, I'm not, I'm not broken. I, I'm not. That's you know, the, the basic, and you talk about the, this journey away from self-improvement uh, that, that before you had been in recovery groups, you had gotten sober, you were, but there was a sort of kind of onward and upward or something. And, and she stopped you in your tracks because she's like, no, you're, you're, I think of that, uh, that passage in Hemingway's farewell to arms, like um, uh, the world breaks everyone. And, and afterwards, many are stronger in the broken places, you know, like that, it it seemed like a lot of the strength in your story came from her saying, no, you're actually worse off than you think, but you're also more lovable than you probably could imagine. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm experiencing full body goosebumps when you say that. And I think that that's, that was such an important turning point for me as a person. And also in the structure of the book was to sort of surprise the reader in the same way that I surprised myself by being like, no, 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 I'm just getting better. Like, it's going to get better. I'm going to keep being positive, positive thinking, positive outlook, try harder. And then Allison was like, no, you're, you're, you're broken. That's why you're here. That's why we're all here. And there was this moment for me of relief. I mean, I think that conversation started this process of unwinding and my, a friend of mine messaged me this morning. She read the book last night in one sitting, which I was delighted by. And she said, you know, it's a sneaky, it's almost a sneaky self-help book. And I said, I think it's, it's a sneaky self-acceptance book. I mean, I don't want anybody to read it and think, boy, am I motivated to improve my behavior? I want them to read it and think, oh, I'm pretty screwed up. And maybe I'm not the only one who is. And maybe I can also find myself in that broken place. You know, maybe I'm the crack where the light gets in. And and maybe that's enough. And maybe people can love me. And it's just about sort of slowing down and then elbowing out space with that with that uncomfortable thought, which is that I'm broken, which I think I spent so many years trying to negotiate my way through just using thought. Yeah, the kind of healing i think a lot of people look for who have experienced deep pain uh, it's is exactly it, it's it's almost that self-improvement i'm going to conquer it seems to mitigate it's fr- it frustrates the healing process right it's it's when you accept uh, you know you have this conversation with allison i love in the book where she's like you're gonna find she's like you're intense you're a lot but <laughs> but you're gonna find someone who lo- finds you as easy to love as i do and so she didn't uh, she didn't 
try to sort of sugarcoat who you are, like the good, the bad, the ugly, right? She, the whole thing is beautiful together. And that the key isn't being someone other than you are. It's accepting who you are. And, and, and that is where the sort of, yeah, that's where the light can shine in. Mm-hmm. I mean, and she's, she saw me just struggle and struggle and struggle to be different and be what I thought was better and suffer so much. And I mean, I love, I love that scene and I love how it actually happened because we just end up listing all of my flaws, you know, which are still my flaws. I mean, I still believe that, that all of those things are true. And I thought at the end she would say, okay, well, you know, but you should work on those. And she just said, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm also imperfect. I'm, you know, I'm selfish and I'm insecure and all these things. And so just having somebody, you know, meet you where you are, I think that's what she taught me friendship could look like instead of a relationship in which one person is there to help another person be, be their best self. Right. Like the opposite of love is control. Right. <laughs> and it seems like so much of your story what like was sort of looking for control, right? And 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 the irony is like the the more the tighter you hold for control, the more out of control your life gets and and, and it's it's sort of this tragic spiral effect. A 100%. And I I mean, I tried to control people that I was in relationships with. I've gone through various periods of trying to control my husband. And I realized I was reflecting recently on why I try to control his behavior. So here's a good example. He smoked cigarettes. I wish that he didn't, right? And I've gone through various phases, which I don't do anymore. Um, But I've gone through phases of trying to suggest really lovingly, you know, or say, oh, you know, don't you know? I mean, it's like giving him information he has. And I thought about it and I was like, why do I do this? Why do I want to control his behavior? It's because in my, in my nightmare fantasy, he gets lung cancer and he dies at 45 or 50 and then I will be sad. And so my greatest fear is losing this person. And I think that I'm going to lose him in this very obvious way, which is smoking cigarettes. But ironically, all my attempts to subtly control and coerce and cajole, they only drive him farther away from me. They only make me a less appealing spouse. And I have much higher of a chance of losing him at 45 or 50 if I keep badgering him than if I just accept the 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 reason that I want to control his smoking is that I am afraid of pain. Like I am afraid of suffering. And if I can just accept suffering will come, he will die. I don't know when it might be before me, it might be after, but can I hold that part with total tender compassion and trust that I have experienced pain before. It's a guaranteed part of life. It's going to come. So how can I be the most loving partner today? And today being the most loving partner means doing whatever I can so that he feels like he can have whatever journey he's supposed to have with smoking or doing the dishes or his career or whatever it is. But it took me years to be able to sort of tease those things apart and realize that my, you know, good intentions, quote unquote, were all self-centered, fear-based panic reactions. Yeah, I, I find when friends or acquaint, friends or people, you know, coworkers, when, when you're in deep pain and they immediately have to sort of tell you it's going to be all right or solve the problem or something, oftentimes I think that's about their anxiety about you being in pain rather than your pain, right? <laughs> 100%. Which yes. is not how Allison was, your friend. No. I mean, she, she seemed very comfortable seeing you in pain, not delighting it, but but she didn't need to explain your pain away. She could be Mm -hmm. present to it 
she could and you, you said this great phrase she midwifed you like she was a, she midwifed a rebirth in you which is a real beautiful way of expressing what she meant to you yeah thank you i think she i mean i was uncomfortable when i first met her because she was in a pain that i couldn't imagine and i have this scene where i'm i'm meeting i'm walking down the street and i get in her car and i sort of prepare myself to talk to her right i think okay i I put on this armature of dealing with an old and sick person and I prepare myself to talk, you know, to talk neutrally. And there was just something about her that just made that unnecessary. I mean, I just saw her and, and despite myself, I would tell her the truth about how I was feeling. And then that would eventually let her tell me the truth about how she was feeling. But I remember when she got, you know, increasingly severe diagnoses, I'd be at her house and people would come over and she'd tell them the results of her scan and they would immediately I remember one person in particular was like, you know what, but I heard this miracle story about this 11 year old kid and he had this bone cancer, but he lived and you're going to live too. And I remember seeing that that only caused Allison more pain to have now this expectation that she might be a strong enough fighter and she could beat it. And I really bristle at a lot of the language around illness where we're fighting a battle and, and, you know, I remember when John McCain got diagnosed and there was this with his brain cancer that ended up killing him. And people would say, you know, boy, John McCain, I mean, he's a fighter. If anybody can beat it, it's John McCain. And I thought, well, how does McCain feel about that pressure? <laughs> I mean, that's a lot of pressure. And and I think Allison felt the same pressure. And, and I felt the same pressure where, you know, after I had a brain hemorrhage and I was facing, you know, this really scary diagnosis. My doctors thought that I had brain cancer. People said to me things like, you know what, you're so smart. You can totally lose a little bit of brain or, you know, I can see your spirit is indomitable. You're going to get through this. And but no one has any idea if any of that's true. No right. idea. Right. No idea. No. If the surgeon doesn't know, there's no way the random person that I've just met knows. But, you know, and this isn't the most charitable, kind, loving kindness thought that I can have. But what I wanted to say was, you know, I'm sorry that my situation makes you think about your own death. You know, or I'm right, sorry right, right, right. Yeah. But, you say something after you describe Allison, you move into telling your own story. And there's a sentence that like, I mean, wow, these are like sentences I wish I would have written. You say, from the time I could understand language, I knew that I would be sent away. And I'm just like, gosh, there's like, talk about abandonment issues. I mean, like, you have this kind of curious childhood where your mom is a philosopher. She's She is married a couple times with several different guys. And so she's pushing you intellectually. Like you are, I mean, it's it's sort of, you know, you're, you're growing up in, in this kind of ultra intellectual environment that's kind of eccentric. And also there, it, it seems like there's a lot of attachment issues that develop because people come and go. And so, you know, you, you remark that you had a tough time integrating sort of mind and body that you, you had sex with your body, but it wasn't a whole experience per person. It, it wasn't a holistic. Experience. I wonder, is, is this kind of sort of bifurcated mind body thing? Is that kind of, do you think that comes from your childhood of sort of ha having this disconnect between the, the, the life of the mind and yet all this kind of that not it, being integrated with love and attachment in ways that creates this kind of weird bifurcation? Yes. I mean, the short answer is, is yes. I think that that had a lot to do with it. Um, and I talk a lot about how touching Allison was actually really unfamiliar to me because it was this very 
Um, it was a touch that didn't need anything. And I didn't really have experience with that. So my, I mean, my family in, in all of its many iterations, they provided for, for all of my needs. Um, I mean, I was sent to the most expensive private schools. We lived in very nice houses. I was, you know, bought books. I had enough clothes, like all of that, you know, all my material needs were cared for. And at the same time, I don't, I don't recall, I can't remember ever being asked about my feelings or, or really being treated with a lot of compassion if my feelings were uncomfortable. So I remember getting into a really bad fight with my stepfather, my second stepfather. And then the next day I was asked to apologize to him. And I remember this isn't in the book, but this is the free life event. Um, you know, I remember just sitting in the living room and and looking at him and just thinking like, I'm in so much pain and I feel so alone, but I know that I have to perform this thing. I have to perform this apology and I have to perform it well because performance was actually a really, really huge part of how my nuclear family interacted. And it's hard for me now to look at pictures of myself as a child. Like I had this moment recently where I felt real terror about the book coming out. And, and I could tell that the feeling wasn't an adult feeling because it was so overwhelming and so imprecise. And I called a friend of mine and he helped me remember that when I was eight, I'd written a play and we'd performed it. And it had basically been a very thinly veiled account of my feelings about my parents' divorce, which of course at the time I had no idea about. And my parents indicated years later that they had felt embarrassed and ashamed when they saw the play. And I realized that my terror that I felt a week ago was eight-year-old Eva, so afraid that I'm going to put on a play and my parents are going to be ashamed. And my friend said to me, Eva, that's not your shame, that's theirs. And that was so life-changing to me. And he said, like, why don't you carry a picture of eight-year-old Eva in your pocket? And I was like... Jason, I've only been in therapy for eight years. We are, that is wizard level stuff. I am not ready to look at a picture of myself as a child. Like what? So his next suggestion was to write down the words, you know, eight-year-old Eva and put it in my pocket and just let her know, you know, we're, I'm an adult now. I got this covered. This is good. Like nobody can hurt me. Nobody's shame is mine. Um, but you know, the fact that I recalled these two experiences means that you're, you're totally on the right track, which is that I just wasn't taught how to feel a feeling in my body or even think a feeling and then talk about it or move it or experience it. And so a lot of my sort of personal therapeutic work now is really about feeling a feeling and then moving it in some way. And um, I'm so grateful that I get to do that work as an adult because I think a lot of people aren't driven to such depths of despair that they need to look for for anything. Um, so, you know, the worse it got, the better my solutions get to be. It's, it, what it, Brene Brown says something like, you know, the thing about shame is no one wants to talk about it, but the less you talk about it, the more of it you have. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I try to talk about it a lot because I feel it a lot. I mean, I feel it's probably my most constant emotional companion. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that Brene Brown is suggesting that we talk about it more. I'm surprised no one has like a bumper sticker like that, like shame, my most constant <laughs> emotional companion. <laughs> I should, uh, you should make that. Yeah. You should yeah. give it out with your book. Like, here you go. Like, it's a, you know, buy two copies of the book. Get yeah. The, yeah. You know, you, it's interesting because you talk about you, you, you're in, you're Princeton, you're in a relationship. You eventually wind up in New York. You are, you know, sort of, you're a, a talented young writer and yet you're kind of trying to project maybe more talent or renown than 
than you have, even though you're doing quite well. But you, you, you talk about these kind of it seems like that continued from your childhood that, that you, you kind of perform, you figure out, you, you know, you said a little bit of cocaine, a little bit of booze, all of a sudden I could, I could let loose and I could, I, although it still didn't seem like you were feeling the feelings for yourself, or, uh, but at least you're learning how to sort of be fun with other people. And, and, and you kind of, I, Thomas Merton says something like there's a difference between being yourself and seeing yourself and, and, and seeing yourself is okay. I'm seeing the, the, sh- the projected self out there. It seems like you got really good at seeing yourself and seeing what people wanted and, and, and how to connect with people at that level you had a lot of sex you had a lot of connections but in retrospect you were it's you as you look back on that time you write about it like you were an outsider looking in all the time yeah that's a that's a really beautiful reflection um and it's true i mean i remember so i was really 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 shy um i mean i just couldn't i couldn't talk to anybody i was really really shy i went to college and i met this woman who was very self-assured and and really confident and just thought that she was great because she was. And I remember going to Starbucks with her and I, I was always terrified of ordering coffee, but I watched her do it and I, and I just copied her tone of voice. And so this sounds really single white female-y, but it was sort of the best education that I could get as I watched popular confident people and I saw the ways in which they handled themselves and I started doing the same. And what alcohol gave me was just, a, it removed the barrier between that desire to essentially copy somebody else and then the fear and shame that I would otherwise feel that I had to do that. Um, But I remember very clearly getting drunk and being more open and thinking to myself, save this for the next time that you're sober, like save this confidence and do it. But I couldn't do it when I was sober because then I was shy again and insecure and freaked out. But you're right. I mean, I always had the sense that I was sort of flying a drone above me and just looking at, you know, who was going to be there and who was going to be nice to me and um, and who could I be mean to to feel better about myself and where was the bathroom to go do drugs. And I mean, it was I was just not present. And and people said that to me and and, and I just couldn't I could hear it, but I didn't have a solution. I mean, I, I I knew, I thought something is really wrong with me. I think I'm like a sociopath. I, I, you know, what, why am I missing this sensitivity chip? And I realized later that, I mean, that's just what terror feels like. I was just terrified all the time. You had a lot of sex though. And was that, did that terror, I mean, like w- was sex part of the thing that broke down the terror or was it like you looked out, oh, these are people that have a lot of sex. I'll copy them. I mean, th- cause that, for somebody that's mm. terrified, it seemed like you could quickly make sexual connections. Yeah, that's true. My my friends have been surprised at how quickly I could close the deal, and I'm not really. Sh- I think it's um. You should, that's like- your next book: How to Close the Deal Quickly. <laughs> I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question: Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught? frustrated in traffic do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here if the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes or even just a solid maybe would you do something for me would you consider becoming a patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more it's for a good cause you can help this podcast and one of the many others i do keep going and you can help launch several other podcast projects i've got in the works so i invite you 
to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Andrew Stravitz, Barry Stewart, Ben Crosby, Ben DeHart, Carol Clemens, Charlotte Donlin, David Norling, David Saul, Ellis Brazil, Jennifer Spite, Jennifer Underwood, Jim Cress, Joel Wentz, John Schneider, Jonathan Butran, Jordan Mossberger, Josh Redder, Kai Wittenpeg, Larry Rule, Liam O'Brien, Michael Butera, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Konauer, Sari Graham, Simone Garabedian, and Stephen Rowe. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. I think, you know what it is, is that... Um most, most of my sort of casual and profligate sexual encounters happened right after I got sober. And I was basically trading one form of dissociating for another. And I remember very clearly I was, I'd been sober for like a minute and, um, and I was in London and I allude to this a little bit in the book, but I was in one relationship I mean, I was in a relationship at home. I was about to get into a different relationship. So I sort of had like two relationships going on at home. And I went to London and I met this guy in the airport and we sort of had a thing. And then I reconnected with a really old friend and we had a thing. And I remember, you know, having like somebody in my hotel room on Saturday night and then having somebody else in my hotel room on Sunday night and thinking this will work. Like, this is good. This is a good substitution for drugs and alcohol. Like this will work. And I never felt connected to anyone. And I, and I, you know, invariably thought this encounter is going to feel great. This encounter is going to be amazing. And I would feel like it just wasn't enough. I mean, it was like cocaine, right? I was like, it's, you know, I remember this working. It'll probably work if I do more of it. And it just wouldn't, it wouldn't work. And that's why my relationship with Cameron was so mind blowing to me because it was the first time that I was with somebody and was sexually attracted to them and in my body and present. And this is a woman that you met in Mm -hmm. Berkeley and and you, you knew you met Allison at roughly the same time, right? So this is, you're, you're getting kind of integrating body and soul Mm -hmm. through this deep friendship and also through this intense romantic relationship that now that I was heartbroken at this part of the book because you, you developed this brain hemorrhage mm-hmm. and you're you know uh, so you're getting this diagnosis and the the prospect of I mean the, the, one of the things that's so painful I think about it, is the ambiguity with the diagnosis that you that it's just it could be this it could be that we your blood levels are a certain level it could be a variant it could be in the brain it could be mm-hmm. so it, she, you, your decision to get the surgery breaks up the relationship. Yeah. Which I thought, I mean, for someone with abandonment issues, this has got to be like a, a knife to the heart, twisted and twisted and twisted. I mean, I was, I was trying, we were both trying to leave that relationship for, I think, at least the second year that we were in it. And we were just stuck in this intense codependent kind of, you know, death spiral. Um, but I remember having this consultation and, you know, the, the memory is at once crystal clear. And I also can't really believe that it happened. So I, you know, it's sort of, it occupies a weird place in my mind, but I remember having this consultation and the surgeon saying, you know, very definitively, like we need to do this biopsy. You have a dark spot, the elevated tumor marker. It's a slam dunk. Like it's a slam dunk for this very rare type of brain cancer. And 
And my then girlfriend just said, you know, I think that I I don't think that this is a good idea. I don't think that you should do this. I I think that you're, you know, you're kind of faking it. I think you're kind of doing this for attention. And I remember just thinking, I can't, I can't do both things. I can't have brain surgery and be in this relationship. And I really need to have brain surgery. So the choice is sort of being made for me. Um, And I never saw her again. I mean, I've never, like the last time I saw her was in front of UCSF hospital and I, and I've never seen her since. You, this process of brain surgery again is one of these things where it, 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 it's, it's strange that your body breaking down leads you to indwell it, seem to like be more comfortable in it. It, it, That strangely, you know, oftentimes that would have the opposite effect on many people, but for you, the, the, pain of sickness and all, despite all the suffering which you describe in in painstaking detail yeah at the same time there's this undercurrent of you settling more and more into your physicality so before brain surgery i remember i would talk to people and they would say things like when i eat eggs i don't feel well or my right hip is a little tight and i just thought that they were magicians i was like how do you know what do you mean you know you don't feel well after you eat eggs or what do you mean you know your right hip is like do i even have a hip like how how would i know how would i know if i mean i just had no relationship to my body at all and so you're totally right it was only through extraordinary pain and suffering that i was able to start to get to feel that i lived inside my body and i was able to tell okay you know they went in through my right sinus. And so the right side of my head really, really hurts. The left side doesn't hurt. The right side hurts. Okay. What else hurts? My neck is a little tight. Um, and it was through pain that I started to feel any sort of sensation. And then I started to realize that, you know, I started doing this style of yoga that was very trauma oriented, very mind body connecting. And I would, I remember so viscerally, my teacher would come and touch me and, and it would feel At first, it just was an absence of pain. And then my register got a little bit more expansive. And then I would think, this feels good. This is pleasure. Okay. And so it took really hitting a physical bottom for me to be able to even start to feel pleasure or feel that something felt more than neutral. I mean, I was just at neutral for decades. And you keep, you know, you're living in this sort of ambiguity afterwards too. Like, you know, look, looking, they're saying, you know, is this tumor going to crop up? You know, we don't see it now. We've, we've got, we fixed the hemorrhaging and yet, you know, we don't know. And there's a continued open-endedness. And after like a soap, after celebrating like uh, an anniversary of sobriety, you want to sort of have sex with somebody you think, and your buddy takes you out for a donut and says, I, I, what about tall, good looking physicists? And then you meet your husband and you know, Hey, uh, everything they say about don't have sex with the guy on the first date Cause he won't respect you. He seems to have respected you. He, he does. And it was very unusual for him to have sex on the first date. Uh, as I learned later, <laughs> cause um, he had not read closing the deal and <laughs> 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 he had your book. He, he could have closed more deals. <laughs> no, he, um, it, it was, it was very unexpected. And this is part of, so I think that there's a whole strand of belief that's like, you know, you got to work on yourself and be the partner that you want and really put out into the universe what you want and you'll get it. And I think that's all code for, you know, have good behavior as a woman, and then you will be rewarded with, you know, a stable relationship. So, I mean, I was just having, 
Yeah. I, I, I mean, I was, I was desperate for any sort of solution. And as I said, you know, my hotel room encounters had been a form of a solution. So I was just going back for the same thing. And, um, and I think part of why I ended up marrying him is because we fell in love and that was the thing we wanted to do. But I was so, I just so didn't care. I mean, I was so, you know, I was used to having relationships be this kind of cat and mouse. I was almost always the cat, just, you know, relentlessly chasing people down and, and, and overwhelming them with intensity. And, um, and with Winston, I, I just, I didn't, I didn't even remember that he was really coming. I mean, my friend was like, I have a guy for you. And I was like, you know, take a number. Like, you know, I've heard this from everybody. I really don't care. I'm probably dying. Um, I'm just, I'm really just trying to have fun. And I think that that, you know, removal of all of my shields meant that when I met Winston, I mean, I also met him and I, and I swear I, I saw his face and I just thought I've been waiting for that face. Like there he is. And I've read about that happening. I, you know, anybody who's listening, who doesn't believe me, I would not believe me either, but it happened. It happened to me. And I just saw him and, and we were drawn to each other. I mean, nobody even had to introduce us. He just knew that I was the person to talk to. And we sat down and yeah, he came home with me and made up in retrospect, a a weird excuse, which was that he had to either leave immediately or sleep over. And, uh, we decided he'd sleep over. Yeah, that would be criticized in in closing the deal. <laughs> don't say, don't give artificial. If you want to close the deal, don't give an artificial timeline. Exactly, exactly. Um, but I remember. I mean, this sounds so weird, but I remember the next day he was going to go celebrate his birthday because it was his birthday the night that we met, and he was getting together with his family. And I thought, oh well, you should invite me because I'm obviously going to be your wife, and I should meet them. And I did not say that out loud. Um, but I had that thought, and now here we are, five and a half years later. Yeah, and you get married. I mean, there's this agony and ecstasy. You, you <laughs> find this love that, in some ways, as you said, Allison was a midwife, getting you to a point where you could be in a different place with a lover, and then you lose her. Yeah. And as a, and yet, in that loss is a rebirth of you. I mean, you you, you get married, and and I, I'm I'm so moved. And then you you say at the end of the second chapter and then it all fell apart. And I'm like, no, it's like, it's like that. It's like that point. And I uh, uh, was that in, in a uh, uh, silver linings playbook where, where Bradley Cooper's reading farewell to arms. He throws it out the window. I was like, no, I've got, I don't want to have to throw this out the window. Uh, but it is interesting that I, I thought, Oh gosh, you know, I, I, my chat of codependent stuff came, I, I self-sabotage. No, it's just you, your health stuff got more ambiguous. And yeah. you had a rare cellular condition. At first, it was, you thought it was a mold allergy. You're going to relocate to New Mexico. You're afraid that uh, Winston's going to leave you because you seem crazy and spastic. And is this neurotic? Am I? And eventually, you find out you have this this cellular issue. And you know, it, you and Winston go through some hard times. I mean, he's depressed, and some of it yeah. is he just internalized all his struggle. He didn't want you to have to bear his own fears and anxieties and. Mm-hmm. sadness over your pain and, and struggle and yet you guys make it through and as Hemingway says you're much stronger in the broken places and I'm like oh my gosh Whew. As, I, as, I, as I'm reading and I'm like okay 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 they like, and it's really beautiful I mean it's the fell, the falling apart led to you know it's interesting there's a guy Lewis Smeads a psychologist who said that he used to say that uh, he's that deceased now but he used to say 
I've been married seven times to the same woman. And he thought the key to healthy marriages were a death and resurrection, a death and rebirth. And that, you know, you're newlyweds, then, you know, young parents or empty nesters or retire. And, and oftentimes where relationships die or, or become toxic is there's not, there's a refusal to sort of let the thing midwife into something different. And it seems like th- this was beautiful. I mean, the thing that fell apart actually led to you being able to be loved deeper. Yeah. I mean, there was this moment where, so, you know, I mean, he basically, we got back to the Bay Area and he just kind of stopped. We moved into a new apartment and for six or seven months, he didn't sleep in the bed with me once. And he would stay up really late and then sleep on the couch. And at first I was, I was like, okay, I'm just going to give him a space. And then I tried all sorts of unhealthy tactics like bullying and cajoling and crying and demanding and all of this. And so what, those just, are like the sta- instead of the stages of grief, it's the stages of, of manipulation, <laughs> bullying and cajoling and crying. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, I mean, I, you know, I tried everything. I tried like walking around naked. I tried, you know, nothing and nothing where I was just like, where is my husband? Like, where, like, where is he? I can't figure this out. And I was getting more and more desperate and trying to, you know, force him to hang out with me more and more. And then I, um, I was talking to a friend about love and relationships. And she just reminded me, you know, if you love somebody you can, and and you can sort of trust, then, then you have a greater capacity for intimacy, right? And all I want is intimacy. And so that night I went home and actually I talked to his best friend and I was really, really upset. And I said, like, I think, I think I'm just going to ask him to move out. You know, I can't, I can't do this. So the friend had called him and said, listen, Winston, like, you need, you need to get it together. Like Eva's pretty great. You're about to lose her. And I think that really shocked him. But the really, the powerful moment was I came home and he said, okay, are you going to divorce me? And I said, no, but I might ask you to move out. And then instead of cajoling and bullying and all of that, I just let him see how much I missed him. And I told him, I said to him, like, I love you so much. And I'm will, I am willing to accept crumbs from you. Because he would give me these moments of attention and I would just want them. And I had never been that vulnerable with a with a partner. I mean, I'd never said like, you know, I, I'm, I'm giving all my power away right now, right? This isn't about you not appreciating what a great thing you have. I feel so lost and I miss you so much. And then he, that, that allowed him to sort of be more vulnerable. And then he agreed that, you know, he had sort of disappeared and that the strain of my illness had been really intense. And we were talking recently and he said, well, Eva, I mean, he hasn't read the book and he said, Eva, but people don't know that I went to therapy. And I was like, well, actually, (laughs) everybody knows that you went to therapy. He was like, well, you didn't talk about that time. I was like, no, I, yep. No, I, I extensively wrote about it, but I wanted to, because I, I wanted to get into a deeper exploration of, of what for me intimacy really is. And, and it's not that like I found the perfect person and everything is amazing. And I think I hear a lot of rhetoric about, you know, you got to work at marriage and we're not really into that. We don't want to have a marriage we have to work at, but we do have a marriage where we, where we want to be intensely and uncomfortably vulnerable with each other. Yeah and, and intimate. And I wanted to say, you know, this isn't because I think readers might be like, wow, Winston's really, he's a prince, you know, he's just going to these surgeries with you and he's going to the desert with you. And I wanted them to see there's a cost to being the, the supportive spouse. There's a cost to being a prince. And he's a human who had his own entire spiritual journey with us that, that I'll never understand. In in reading, when I was reading your book, there's this passage by a psychiatrist named Frank Lake, who's 
deceased now, but, and I kept thinking about this as I was reading your book, and I just wanted to share it with you. He says that so far as our own subjective, subjective feelings are concerned, any interdirected questioning of our basic human, human state may produce the same dismal answer as before. The cupboard is bare. While we regard our humanity as a container, which ought to have something good in it when we look inside, we miss the whole point of the paradox. We are not meant to be self-contained, but channels of the life and energies of the divine. From this point of view, our wisdom is to let the bottom be knocked out of our humanity, which will ruin it as a container at the same time as it turns it into a satisfactory channel. I just thought of your story as like the, the bottoming out of your humanity, which ruined it as a container, but opened you up to give and receive love, to be a channel of love. That's that's a beautiful passage. I've never heard that before. And and that's exactly what it is. And I, I was talking to a friend today and she, the same friend who read the book last night, and she said, one, I understand your relationship with Allison now, but two, she said, I understand that my behavior towards other people is different because of your behavior towards me and your behavior is different because of Allison's behavior towards you. And I was like, that's, that's why I wrote this book is, 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 you know, aside from all my egomaniacal ambitions and all of that, like this, the spiritual purpose that I think, you know, the greater purpose was just to, to become a channel of this kind of extraordinary grace and love that Allison lived with and, and, and begin to see if just these strands of compassion can, can go outward. And you're right. I had to have the bottom fall out. I mean, I had to have my life as I knew it absolutely end. Um, it just had to be destroyed for me to be able to be an effective channel or mediator. Well, I'll tell you, it's a great story of love, of, of, of love given and received. And it's a great book. And thanks for taking some time talking with me about it. Thank you so much. Your questions have been so great. I, oh, really, I a, love your approach. Yeah. The pleasure, a, pleasure. Pleasure was all mine. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Eva for coming on the podcast. Do check out her book, How to Be Loved. You will not regret it, I promise you. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.